0: Okay, if you have your Bibles, turn to Zechariah. And we'll be in chapter number 14 tonight. That will finish the book of Zechariah. And then we'll get into the last book of Malachi, hopefully next week. And uh, there's four chapters there, maybe about four weeks, and we'll be have finished the Minor Prophets. Well, tonight we're going to get the grand finale of, of the book of Zechariah, this great prophecy about uh, uh, the coming of the Lord and the coming of his kingdom, and it's going to start out uh, uh, with a great battle, and it's going to end with the establishment of the millennial kingdom of our Lord, so let's pick up in chapter 14, uh, beginning in verse number 1. He says, Behold, the day of the Lord is coming, and your spoil will be divided in your midst, now, the day of the Lord is what? The day of the Lord begins with the great tribulation and runs all the way into the end of the millennium. And so uh, he says the day of the Lord is coming. It's in your future, and your spoil will be divided in your midst. For I will gather all the nations to battle against Jerusalem. When the armies gather at Armageddon and Megiddo, they're coming to take Jerusalem. In fact, by the time all the armies gather, Jerusalem's going to get ransacked, and that's the picture that he's getting, giving us right here. He says, for I will gather all the nations to battle against Jerusalem. And uh, if you putting this in a historical context or in a prophetic context, we know that the Antichrist, you're going to have the two witnesses, the first three and a half years of the Great Tribulation are going to preach against the Antichrist in his kingdom, and then he's going to come in, he's going to kill the witnesses, and he's going to commit the abomination of desolations. He's going to declare himself to be God, And uh, uh, then a remnant of Jews is going to escape into the wilderness. We looked at that last week. And uh, then at the end of the Great Tribulation, these armies are going to come against Jerusalem. Jerusalem is going to be ransacked. Uh, The Antichrist is going to battle against these various armies in the Valley of Armageddon. And then the Lord is going to return. So he says, for I will gather all the nations to battle against Jerusalem. The city shall be taken. The houses... uh, What is that word? Huh? Rifled and and, uh, destroyed. And the woman ravished. Half of the city shall go into captivity, but the remnant of the people shall not be cut off from the city. So there's going to be a remnant after this battle that's going to return back to the city. Uh, There'll probably be some Jews left in the city, especially those apostate Jews that sided with the Antichrist. And so... Uh, during that time they're going to have that battle and Jerusalem's going to be ransacked and then the Lord's going to return and uh, he's going to retake the city for the remnant of Jews that are left on the earth. Look at verse number 3. Then the Lord will go forth and fight against those nations as he fights in the day of battle. Now, we know from Revelation 19 that the Lord is going to come with the armies of heaven, that's you and I, uh, maybe some angels. I don't, I don't, I'm not sure, you know. I, we never not have to worry about it because he's going to defeat the armies with the very word of his mouth. And we gonna see details of that a little bit later on in this prophecy. All right, then in verse number 4 he says, And in that day his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives. Right there across the valley of Kidron, you're looking from the, uh, towards the west uh, from the Mount of Olives, looking east. Uh, he's going to land right there on the Mount of Olives, uh, the very Mount of Olives from which he, remember, ascended up to heaven. He's going to come right back to that spot, and that's exactly what the angels told the disciples would happen. This man, The the Lord who you see going up, he's going to come right back down here one day. And then when he comes back, the Mount of Olives shall be, back to verse 4, shall be split in two from east to west, making a very large valley. Half of the mountain shall move. Towards the, look at the details here. Toward the north and half of it toward the south. Then you shall flee through the mountain valleys the, or return from the mountain valleys for the mountain valley shall reach to Azel. Now, people are going to flee when this earthquake takes place, but the Jews are going to come back. Yes, you'll, you shall flee as you fled from the earthquake in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah. Uh, Thus the Lord my God will come and all of the saints with you. So the Lord is coming with his saints, and we're his saints. In Revelation chapter 19, we see the Lord coming with these people clothed in uh, pure white garments. Well, that's us. We're the ones in the pure white garments. What are those garments? They're the, they're the wedding garments. We're still wedding the, wearing the wedding garments from the wedding supper of the Lamb. Actually, those are our new bodies, and we're going to be wearing those forever, and we're going to be, uh, we're going to be filled with the glory of God. And so we're going to return with the Lord. That's the church that returns, as uh, we come with him to establish his millennial kingdom. And it shall come to pass in that day that there will be no light. Now, this is a really tough passage to, tra- uh, to interpret right here, but I, 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 I think we're going to be able to get what it's trying to say. I don't know in, if we can get it in detail, but we'll get the main theme of what he's saying here. He says, it shall come to pass in that day that there will be no light. And that day, again, is the day of the Lord. When the day of the Lord comes, we're told uh, that it's not a day of light. It's a day of darkness. It's a terrible day. And so even though there's light, there will be no light. It will be that dark on this earth, that spiritually dark, and the lights will diminish. And I think that's what he's trying to say here. And then in verse number 7, it shall be one day which is known to the Lord. It shall be one day which is known to the Lord, neither day nor night, but at evening time it shall happen that it will be light. So when the Lord comes back, what's night will be day. And that's uh, literally and physically, uh, I mean, literally and spiritually speaking. I mean, when the Lord comes back, everything's gonna be made right. And spiritually, there's gonna be light in this world. Even though it's night, it'll still be light. I mean, when you think of darkness now, you think of, you know, bad times. You think of wicked people, wicked things happening at night. In that day, those I think until we go into eternity, we still will have daytime and nighttime, but spiritually everything will be light. And I think that's what he's trying to say right here. Uh, In verse number 8, And in that day it shall be that the living waters shall flow from Jerusalem, half of them toward the eastern sea and half of them toward the western sea. In both summer and winter it shall occur. Now, if you were to leave Jerusalem and go east and you were to go west, all you're going to see is a barren wilderness there because there's no water. So what's going to happen when the Lord lands on the Mount of Olives and splits that mountain in two, he's going to open up that brook that runs up under, those, under the ground, and that river's going to flow east and it's going to flow west, and all of that land uh, surrounding Jerusalem is going to become like the Garden of Eden. I have no doubt It'll be exactly like the Garden of Eden. And in eternity, I believe it is the Garden of Eden when that other dimension is opened back up. That dimension was closed when Adam and Eve sinned. Uh, It'll be part of that garden that comes from the Euphrates River. But anyway, he says, uh, and I I think here that that that's not only a literal fulfillment, but it'll also be a spiritual fulfillment because he calls these living waters. They're going to bring life to the desert. But there are also going to be, with Jesus ruling and reigning on earth, there's also going to be life, spiritual life given to the people that are on this earth. And so it's going to be a great day when the Lord returns in that day. And in verse 9, and the Lord shall be king over all the earth. In that day it shall be, the Lord is one and his name is one. I love that passage right there. I mean, when the Lord returns, there's not going to be any doubt who he is. It's not going to be god is three persons the lord is one person and his name is one and what will that name be it'll be that name which is called wonderful that name above all names the name of jesus christ i have no doubt jehovah yeshua jehovah is salvation uh, I, you know when you say jesus christ to a to a person who speaks Arabic or hebrew they're going to say i don't know what name is that I'm, what does that mean but we know that that comes from the greek word Jesus. And uh, it comes from the Hebrew word that's Yeshua or Joshua. Uh, So uh, that's the name that means Jehovah is salvation and his name will be one. Then in verse number 10, all the land shall be turned into a plain. Again, if you leave Jerusalem, all of that land around Jerusalem is hills. And so you got this whole transformation of the geography of that area that's gonna take place when Jesus returns, because you're gonna have these rivers that are flowing that don't flow there now, and that's gonna bring life to that area, and then it's gonna all be formable because all those mountains are gonna be turned into plains. He says, on all the land shall be turned into plain from Geba to Ramon, south of Jerusalem, and Jerusalem shall be raised up. Now, Jerusalem's raised up pretty high now. It's a, you know, like the highest point in, in that entire area, and, but, but it'll be raised up and inhabited and replaced from Benjamin's gate to the place of the first gate and the corner gate and from the tower of Hananel to the king's wine presses, and the people shall dwell in it, and no longer shall there be utter destruction. You know, Jerusalem's gonna face some rough times in these last days, but all that's gonna end when the Lord returns. And I really like this, because it says Jerusalem shall be safely inhabited. So when he lands on the Mount of Olives. Uh, uh, the inhabitable land is going to become farmable land and all of the enemies of the Lord will be destroyed and Jerusalem will finally be a, a safe place to live. Now if you were to go to Jerusalem today and you were to ask someone, there were certain areas when we were in Jerusalem that I really questioned whether or not we should be there or not because they seemed to be pretty dangerous but you would ask one of these Israeli soldiers or one of these policemen or uh, one of the people at, uh, uh, at the various digs and sites, is this safe? And they had always, their answer was always, all of Israel that, that, is, that the Israelis control is safe. It's the safest place in the world. And I want to say, well, why are y'all carrying machine guns if it's so safe? And this is past Sunday, I don't know if you, you saw it or not, but right there in the old city, in the, uh, what they call the, the uh, Muslim quarter, right there in that area, a soldier was stabbed to death, an Israeli soldier was stabbed to death. So it's really not safe. Now, on a, if you put that and compare, put Israel, in, I mean, Jerusalem and compare it to New York City or New Orleans, you probably would say it's safe. Because really there aren't any say, cities on this earth that you could truly say are safe. But in that day, not only will Jerusalem be safe, but all the cities on this earth will be safe. Then in verse number 12, and he, says, he says, and this shall be the plague which the Lord will strike all the people who fought against Jerusalem. And so all the enemies of the Israelites, those who didn't show any mercy to the Israelites, God's not going to show any mercy on them. And watch what happens here. And I believe this is what happens when the Lord comes to the earth with his saints. Their flesh shall dissolve While they stand on their feet, their eyes shall dissolve in their sockets, and their tongues shall dissolve in their mouths. Now, a lot of people, a lot of these prophecy guys come here and say that is a nuclear attack. Well, if there was a nuclear attack on Jerusalem, then Jerusalem wouldn't be inhabitable for many, many years. Now, the Lord could certainly take away all of the nuclear radiation in that city and repair it, but I don't think that's what this is at all. If you go back... Over to Colossians chapter 1, verse 17, we're told there that, in, that Christ holds all things together. That means he holds all the atoms on this earth together. And all the atoms in your body and my body he holds together, the atoms of my eyes, the atoms of my ears, uh, the atoms of my flesh. And all he has to do is let go, and all of that dissolves. And I believe at his word, that uh, their tongues are going to be dissolved and their eyes are going to dissolve from their sockets and and their flesh will dissolve while they stand on their feet. I believe that's what this is speaking of here, not so much a nuclear attack, because I don't believe there's going to be a nuclear attack on Jerusalem. Uh, Then in verse number, which one are we on? Verse 13. It shall come to pass in that day, and what day again? In the day of the Lord, that a great panic, and we're talking about the very last panic, Part of the day of the Lord. Actually, I think here we're actually talking after Christ returns. And there are these these people on earth still left on this earth who have come against Jerusalem. There are people on this earth who have sided with the Antichrist. And they're going to panic because uh, everyone, and at first, everyone's going to grab the hand of his neighbor for help, but they're going to end up raising his hand against his neighbor's hand. And so they're going to join together against Israel and against the Lord, but then once they're defeated, they're going to turn on one another. And then Judah, the inhabitants, the Israelites who return, are going to have a hatred against their enemies at this point. It's going to be like a plague on their enemies. Look at verse 14. Judah will also fight at Jerusalem. I mean, the fight's going to be over. The war's going to be won. And now it's going to be this cleanup time. It's going to be this... uh, getting rid of all the enemies of the Israelites, all the wicked people on this earth, all the wicked people in Jerusalem, all the wicked people in Israel. So Judah also will fight at Jerusalem, and the wealth of all the surrounding nations shall be gathered together. And they're going to gather up all of this wealth of their enemies. That's happened a few times to Israel, if you remember. This is nothing new. Whenever they turned to the Lord and, and got right with the Lord and the Lord delivered them, he also made them wealthy. Somehow they... You know, I mean, when Abraham disobeyed God and went down to Egypt, he came back wealthier than he was before. Uh, when the people were living and, uh, and fighting against, or uh, uh, living outside of the will of God, and and they were fighting their enemies, and their enemies had defeated them. When God came and helped them, they always got a spoil, and 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 it's not going to be any exception in the in the at the end of the great tribulation, they shall be they shall get. It says, and their wealth of all the surrounding nations shall be gathered together, gold, silver silver, and apparel in great abundance. Such also shall be the plague, this plague on these people, on the horse and the mule and the camel and the donkey and all the cattle that will be in those camps. All the possessions are going to now belong. It's like a plague comes upon these wicked people and they lose all their possessions to the Israelites. A lot like if you remember the story of Haman in the book of Esther, how he uh, devised this, plot where he was going to destroy all the Israelites. And then when Artaxerxes uh, was told the truth about Haman by Esther, Artaxerxes allowed the Jews to defend themselves and God was on their side. And if you remember, uh, they defeated their enemies and they took a plunder. They, they, They took all of their possessions and all of their land and all of their cattle. So that's kind of a prophetic picture of what's going to take place right here. All right, and then once the nation of Israel is settled back into the promised land, this gets really cool right here, the last feast of the Levitical calendar is fulfilled. Now, that's really interesting because we know the last feast, if you go back to Leviticus, and we're not going to go back and study all these feasts, but if you go back to Leviticus, the very last feast is the Feast of Tabernacles. And so... And if you look the first four feasts, they were fulfilled in exact order. You've got the seven-day feast of unleavened bread, which begins with Passover. When was Passover fulfilled? When Jesus Christ was crucified on the cross. When was the feast of the unleavened bread fulfilled? When he was buried in the grave. Then when was the feast of the first fruits fulfilled? When he was raised from the grave. And if you take those, the timeline of those days when, when, of Jesus being uh, uh, crucified, buried, and then resurrected, it fits exactly with the timeline of those first three feasts uh, in the book of Leviticus. So you got the first three feasts, and then exactly 50 days after the feast of first fruits is fulfilled, that's the third fe- feast, and when was it fulfilled? It was fulfilled when Jesus Christ was resurrected from the dead. He's become the first fruit over the dead. And, and, and exactly 50 days after that, what took place then? One the reason it's called Pentecost 50, is Pentecost. Pentecost, the Feast of Pentecost, which in the Levitical uh, calendar, the Feast of Pentecost was when the new grain was offered up. And we're the new grain. When God poured out his spirit on the church and Peter preached that great sermon and 3,000 people were saved, that fulfilled the feast of Pentecost. Now that was the last feast to be fulfilled. Now we jump ahead and we see the last of the seven feasts fulfilled at the end of the great tribulation. So somehow those other two feasts, the, I mean the other feasts, we got four, we've got Passover, Unleavened Bread, first fruits, and Pentecost that have been fulfilled. We've got three left. So somehow uh, the, th- the other two feasts have to be fulfilled when the Feast of Tabernacles is fulfilled to keep it in order. And God doesn't do things out of order, so we, we know they're going to be fulfilled at some point uh, during this time period. And the next feast to be fulfilled is the day of the trumpets, which is Rosh Hashanah, which is the Jewish New Year. Now that makes sense because it, it, the New Year to the Jews, just like a New Year to, a, to an American, New Year promises new things. You know, the reason people celebrate the New Year is because they want a better year than the last year. And what we're entering into when the Feast of Trumpets is, is blown, we're entering into a new age. And that begins the day of the Lord. So the first feast that's fulfilled of the last three is the feast of trumpets. And that's, I believe, no doubt, the rapture. It'll take place on Rosh Hashanah. And it, simultaneously, and the reason it's called trumpets instead of trumpet, is that also the great tribulation will begin at that time too. And that trumpet will be blown in heaven. Then the next feast to be fulfilled was the day of atonement where the Jew afflicted his soul for his sin. Now, when will that be fulfilled? Well, we saw that fulfilled back in chapter 12, verse 10. Let's read chapter 12, verse 10. And I will pour out on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and supplication. Then then they will look on me, the Lord, this is Jehovah speaking, whom they pierced, And yes, they will mourn, just like they did on the Day of Atonement. I don't know if people really mourn, but they were supposed to mourn. But here they're going to actually mourn because they're going to mourn because they they uh, they they sin their greatest sin when they killed Jesus Christ, and they're going to realize that when they see his nail scarred hands and his nail scarred feet that uh, they committed that sin and they're going to mourn as one mourns for his only son and grieve for him as one grieves for a firstborn, a lost firstborn. And so there's going to be this great day of mourning. Then we come back to chapter 14, and we're at the Feast of Tabernacles. Now, what was the Feast of Tabernacles? Well, that memorialized God's presence with his people in the wilderness journey because they lived in booths, and they wanted to... I want them almost always be reminded of that time in the wilderness, and so uh, and and the fact that during the wilderness God was present with them in that cloud of glory that was over that tabernacle, and so in the millennium, in the millennium, and that's the next the last feast to be observed. The whole millennium is really an op, uh, an observance of the Feast of Tabernacles, because God is gonna dwell with his people. And he's not gonna just dwell with the Israelites, he's gonna dwell with all the people of this earth. And, it's, and that's gonna be a feast, not just celebrated by the Israelites, it's gonna be celebrated by all the people of this earth. Can you imagine the day when we know that God Almighty in the flesh is inhabiting Jerusalem? He's in his temple in Jerusalem. I Maybe mean, that's just incomprehensible, but it's truth. And it's going to happen one day. And we're going to celebrate the fact that he's there. Now, as born-again believers, we are his temple. And so we're always, these feasts are all fulfilled in Jesus Christ for us. And, I mean, he paid for our sin. He, he died on a cross. Uh, the only thing, you know, left for us is to be raptured out of here. But, but God dwells with us now, not in the way like he's going to dwell with us in those glorified bodies but he dwells with us now. But in that day, for the people that are on this earth who, who aren't part of the church, they're going to celebrate the Feast of Tabernacles along with the Jews, because God will be present on this earth, and he won't be just the God of the Jew. He'll be the God of the Gentile too. The church will be different from that time. And so what, you're, what we're about to read here, for us, it really is more applicable not to us, but to the Jew and to the Gentile that's left here on earth. And listen to what he says, and maybe I can clear this up. He says, and it shall come to pass that everyone who is left of all the nations, not just the Jews, which came against Jerusalem, shall go up from, I mean, from all, every nation is going to come against Jerusalem. And the people that are left on this earth at that time will be uh, both Jew and Gentile from every nation. And they shall go up from year to year to worship the King, Jehovah Sabaoth, the Lord of hosts, and to keep the Feast of Tabernacles. Everybody from year to year is going to come and they're going to see God present in Jerusalem. I mean, what a, you know, like I said, uh, the greatest attraction on earth won't be Disney World or, or the Empire State Building or, or the Dome of the Rock or any of that. The greatest, uh, the greatest. Attraction in that day uh, will be uh, the Lord himself and the temple where he lives. And it shall come, and verse number 17, it shall be that whichever of the families of the earth do not come up to Jerusalem to worship the king, the Lord of hosts, on them there will be no rain. So they won't get any physical rain, which means they won't have any material blessings. And I think there's a spiritual application there because they won't get any spiritual rain and they won't have any spiritual blessings. If the family of Egypt will not come up and enter in, they shall have no rain. They shall receive the plague with which the Lord strikes the nations who do not come up to keep the Feast of Tabernacles. Now, Egypt always represents the world, so that's why he names Egypt here. But but he also says here that this plague will strike any of the nations and really you can translate that peoples, any of the people who do not come up to keep the Feast of Tabernacles, they're going to be cursed and not blessed. And this shall be the punishment of Egypt and the punishment of all the nations that do not come up to keep the Feast of Tabernacles. Now, you've got to ask yourself, who wouldn't want to come up and keep the Feast of Tabernacles? Tabernacle. Now, it's really interesting to me when I see a passage like this to try to ponder how in the world is the Lord going to get everybody there for the Feast of Tabernacles? I mean, first of all, it sounds to me like there's not going to be many people left on this earth. And then are they going to fly? Are they going to have to get in a boat? I mean, if you've got to get in a boat to go over there, you, you won't be able to ride a horse all the way to Jerusalem if we're on horses. So how can they be expected to come from all over the world to Keep the feast of tabernacles so you ponder that and you wonder you know how are we going to travel in that day maybe there will be airplanes maybe there will be cars in that day i mean i don't know but if they don't in any case they're going to be required to keep the feast of tabernacles and if they don't they're going to be cursed and again i ask the question why would anybody not want to come and see the lord in all his glory well that's an easy question to answer because all you have to do is look at the Jews in the wilderness. There they were, and they had the glory of the Lord right over that tabernacle. And I mean, when they first saw that, they were all falling on their face. And, and, and man, they, I mean, I bet every day they went out and said, Golly, look at the glory of the Lord right over the tabernacle. And every day they saw that, and they saw the glory lead them here, and they saw the glory lead them over there. Wherever the glory stopped, they stopped. Whenever the glory moved, they moved. And I mean, I mean, it had to be a sight for the first year and the second year, maybe the third year. But after four or five years, how long does the millennium last? A thousand years. After four or five years, they got up, picked their man up, went in and ate, and I don't even think they glanced at the glory. And 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 they, and and all of a sudden, they really didn't care that much about the presence of God. They began to murmur and complain against Moses and against, the, against God. And every once in a while, God had to, had to strike them with some kind of plague. He had to open up the earth and swallow a bunch of them up to get them to do, to do what they should do, to, to let them be reminded of just who that is in that glory cloud hanging over the tabernacle right there. And that's exactly what's going to happen here. I mean, maybe for the first 100 years, everybody's going to say, wow, that's so cool going up to see the Lord. But after a while, you say, man, we've got to pack up again put the kids in the car. We've got to drive all the way to Jerusalem. I mean, our flight to Jerusalem. I mean, this is a pain. I'm not going to do it this year. We'll do it next year. And when that happens, when they skip, it's going to become old hat to them, I'm sure. It won't ever become old hat to us because we will be so filled of the eternal glory of God as, as part of the, church. The presence of God, the spiritual presence of God is eternal. I mean, it's eternal peace. It's eternal joy. Everything about it's eternal. But for the people on this earth who aren't saved yet, everybody's not going to be saved. The people that aren't saved, they're not going to have that glory. I think people get saved in the millennium. I mean, that's kind of unclear whether that happens or not. The Jews are, are not The church. There are Jews who are part of the church, but the Jews won't be the church, and they'll be in in bodies just like you and I have, and I believe they will still have a fallen nature. So there will be this tendency to stray away from God, and they'll have to make the same choices. Now it'll be easier for them because they'll live in a perfect world, and they'll see the fruit of righteousness and truth, and there won't be a devil there tempting them at all. But you go all the way to the end of the millennium. And the devil's set loose. He's released. And it sounds like the majority of the people follow after him again, and they they rebel against the Lord. They've had a thousand years of his rule, and they think they can have it better without him because of that fallen nature. And they rebel, and that rebellion lasts that long, and they're wiped out. Then we go into eternity, and everybody in eternity is born again. Everybody who goes into eternity is born again. So... We can finish up now. Uh, in verse twenty, the last two verses of Zechariah, he says, "In that day, I love this part right here. Holiness to the Lord." And and this is a rough translation that we get right here. In the Hebrew, I'm going to try to explain to you what this is saying here in just a second. But he says, "In that day, the holiness to the Lord shall be engraved on the bells of the horses." The pots of the Lord's house shall be like the bowls before the altar. Yes, every pot in Jerusalem and Judah and really the rest of the world shall be holiness to the Lord of hosts. Everyone who sacrifices shall come and take them and cook in them, and in that day there shall no longer be a Canaanite. Now, there will be Canaanites more than likely, you know, but there won't be a Canaanite in the sense, what, what do Canaanites represent? They represent pagan, godless, secular people, the people who don't see God as the Lord of hosts, who don't see God as holy. And so there won't be anything secular left in that day. I mean, even the bells on the horses will say holiness to the Lord. Even the pots and pans we use to cook will be holy to the Lord. In the millennium, there won't be any idols. The only thing that can draw people away from God and toward holiness is just willful neglect of God. And that's going to happen, I believe. Uh, And there's going to be people who are going to commit crimes in that day. And there's going to be judges on this earth who are going to punish those crimes. And the punishment is going to be severe. But everything in, there won't be any idols. There won't be any false gods. Everything in the millennium will be all about him, everything. Everything, that means everything will be sanctified. There'll be no such thing as secular in that day. And really, for us as born-again believers, we need to begin to practice that right now. There should be nothing in our lives that's of the Canaanite. Nothing, we should rid our lives of anything that's pagan, anything that's demonic, anything that's godless, uh, anything that's idolatrous. We should take those things out of our lives because in heaven, I mean, we need to get used to it. In heaven, there's no such thing as secular. Everything we do is to the glory of God. Everything, whether we eat or drink or whatever we do, well, we're told to do that now, aren't we? Doesn't that sound familiar? did not Paul tell us to do that? Everything is to be holiness to the Lord. And for you and I, that won't be a problem because we won't have an old nature. We'll have nothing but a new nature. Uh, It'll be impossible for us to sin. But for the Israelites, for the people on this earth, uh, they're going to be ruled with a rod of iron. You and I won't have to be forced to do those things. That'll be our nature to do those things. But they're going to be... They're going to have to do those things. And again, the environment's going to be conducive to people wanting to do those things. But that old nature is pretty bad. We all know that. And it doesn't take much fuel to get it uh, to rebel against God. But what a day. What Zechariah's describing a day. you know, I think a lot of people won't like that. There are a lot of people who call themselves Christians that I don't think they're going to like having a life that's totally sold out to the Lord. I mean, if you don't like that now, what's going to make you like that then? I mean, I, 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 speaking in my own testimony, or my own, from my own experience, I want to be holy to the Lord. I'm not. But that's my desire. And I long for the millennium when even the pots and pans are holy to the Lord. I long for the day when I don't have it. You know, I don't need to make a choice. The choice is already made in my heart and my soul because my mind is pure and my soul is pure, and I want to do everything that I do to the glory of God. And that's something we need to get used to because that's the way it's going to be in the millennium. Oh, what a day. Maranatha, Lord Jesus. Father, we just thank you for your word, and we thank you for the hope that we have that this coming millennium and your return to this earth, Lord. We can't wait to see the day when you... Each stand on the Mount of olives and and Lord uh, this world has changed back to what uh, or at least a resemblance of what you intended it to be Lord we we know we're going to be there not because we deserve to be there more than the other people on this earth but Lord because you've shown us such great grace because you've you've poured out your spirit on us in such a way that Lord we've seen our sin and we've we, we, we know our need for the cross and You've washed us in your blood, and you've made us righteous, Lord. We're so blessed to be your people. By your mercy and by your grace, we're your people. Lord, I just ask that, uh, again, as we prayed earlier, that, that uh, we're given those opportunities to help uh, be your witness on this earth, to help see people uh, saved, Lord, so that, that uh, they become children of God, too. Lord, we're so grateful again for all that Jesus Christ has done for us. We thank you for the lessons you've taught us in Zechariah, and we look forward to what you're going to teach us in Malachi. We, just, we again, just thank you for your word. It's in Christ's name I pray. Amen.